This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we start an in-depth look at the five different responses to Hellenism in the first century world of Judaism. We will examine the priestly group known as the Sadducees. Yeah, and eventually in our discussion today, we're going to get into a presentation just to give you a heads up on that. It'll be a little while before we jump into it, but uh, there will be some photos that will hopefully aid in your learning. So be watching and ready for those as they show up. And I have a fancy new tool that allows me to uh, add chapter markers and uh, add images into the podcast. So if you are using a podcast player that supports chapter markers, which is pretty much most third-party uh, podcast players, uh, the one I like to use is Overcast, and that's where the, the tool comes from. It's the same developer. Um, but Pocket Cast, um, Podcast Addict, pretty much any of the ones we recommend on the How to Listen page on our website uh, will support it. So if you're using one of those apps when we're talking about an image, I'll set the chapter marker to to show up, and the podcast artwork will change from our Bama Discipleship, uh, Bama Podcast artwork to the image. So you'll just see it there. But we'll also have our normal presentation as well. So whatever works for you to view it. We're pretty cutting edge here at the Bama Podcast. Try to be. I'm not going to lie. Brent Billings, everybody. Um, so we got a, man, we got a ton of stuff. We went through a lot of stuff in our last conversation, just talking about Hellenism and racing through a timeline. And I, I'm hoping that we didn't, uh, attempt to try to get it all, just try to learn it all on that run through. We need to go back and we need to kind of hone in on these different moments and these different groups. And so over the next handful of podcasts, what I want to do is we, we talked in our last discussion about Hellenism and this, New Brent kind of described to me uh, what you have heard and understand as what Hellenism is. So Hellenism is like this shift uh, from from the gods being the center of the universe to man being the center of the universe, and man is how we measure everything against. Uh, we can make a comparison to man. Man is at the center. Man is the measure of all things is, is one of the common sayings. Perfect. So this changes uh, our motivations and it changes our end goals. It's not just about some abstract philosophy or theology even. This is actually about what becomes important because now all of a sudden pleasing the gods isn't my foremost concern. It ends up becoming pleasing myself. And the gods still exist. They're still Absolutely. part of the world. Yep. And even maybe even more importantly, now the gods almost serve me rather than serving the gods. The gods are almost uh, something I manipulate for my ends because now the world has become about my comfort and my leisure, my security, my luxury. Um, and and so this has totally changed the world. And And as Judaism was changing, the world was changing, and Judaism had to figure out the world of Jesus. We're, what we're wrestling with really is a couple centuries preceding or that immediate century preceding Jesus. And and so this is the world that Jesus is born into and encounters. And, you know, Galatians uh, 4, 4, I believe, says, um, at just the right time, one translation puts it, at just the right time. Most translations will say at the fullness of time. At just the right time, God sent Jesus into the world. And so one of the questions is, is why why this time? Of all the points in human history, this was just at the right time. There's a lot of ways that we could wrestle with that question and answer that question. But I think one of the reasons why it was just the right time is because of the tension that Judaism was experiencing as God's people. 
they were trying to grapple with what do we do with Hellenism. And they responded in multiple ways, different ways, really five different ways that we're going to identify in our study. We're going to look at five different groups and how they responded to Hellenism and try to use it to reflect on ourselves. I think as we go through these five groups, definitely part of the goal uh, of why I'm doing it this way is I want us to reflect on it and I want us to relate to these groups in different ways. I think there's definitely a group that, that we're going to probably relate to more than any other. Uh, each one of us as individuals, we probably wrestle with different aspects of each group as individuals, but I think every one of you as a listener um, is going gonna, is gonna to hear about a group and go, oh, man, that's for my heart. That's where my heart beats. Um, I know for me, I gravitate towards the Essenes. We'll look at the Essenes later. Like that is how I, I just tick uh, by default. Brent, you've run through this before. What group do you feel like you probably resonate with the most? Uh, well, I'm, you know, very Herodian, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also identify a lot with Pharisees. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, I have aspirations of being Essenic, yes. Essene-like. Yes. Um, but... Yeah, yeah. I, I would say mostly Herodian and Pharisee. Yeah, so we definitely want to, as we talk about these groups, we want to wrestle with not just abstract history, but try to internalize it a little bit and say, what parts of this do I need to learn from? Because every single group, this is not going to be a discussion about which group had it most right, because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus confronted every worldview. He confronted every response. And he also validated on some level every response. Every single one of these groups has something that they're going to bring to the table. And every single one of these groups has something that they're going to uh, struggle with. And we want to examine that very, very closely. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Every one of these groups that we're going to look at throughout this summer um, on our podcast, every group has something that they're bringing to the table, some strength that God wants to use because of the way that they approach the issue. And every single one of these groups is going to have something that they struggle with. And we want to wrestle with that internally so that we can learn from that struggle and ask where we struggle in the same ways. That's why we're taking all this time to do this and academically to understand the world of Jesus. But while we're going through this little journey here, lots and lots and lots to learn. And we're going to go through each one of these responses as a separate podcast. We'll right. give it the full treatment. Yep. Uh, and today, of course, is Sadducees. And when I was growing up, I always grouped Pharisees and Sadducees together. Yeah, Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees. And I yep. like I. I did not understand that there was any distinction at all. I thought they were basically the same group, and now I realize that they are about as opposite as you can get. Yeah, you could not have them on on further ends of the spectrum. When you read in the Gospels about these moments where they're working together, there's a lot of backstory to that, and we'll cover that all in this session when we get to those stories. But that's really something, because these are about as polar opposites as Republicans and Democrats in our world. Like, to think that the same group would be a total misunderstanding, but we do that all the time in our Christian thinking. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees killed Jesus. Well, the Pharisees... And we're going to look at that, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not kill Jesus. Um, Jews, Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Sadducees, very particularly the chief priests, killed Jesus. That's all a later discussion that we're going to have. But there is an absolute distinction to be made there. And I'm going to try to do this in a way, hopefully I can teach this well enough, that everybody's going to understand how totally different those two groups are. But yeah, we're going to start with Sadducees today. So I want to ask this question. I want to start by asking, where did the Sadducees come from? And uh, what happened to them? And what kind of part do they play in the story? And how have they... How do they interact with Rome and particularly Hellenism as a whole? And we, we already planted a bunch of seeds in our last conversation. And so 
The Sadducees really come from uh, the, the line of priestly families that date all the way back to the time of David and Solomon. At the, in the Davidic kingdom, they were trying to restore a priesthood that had probably been lost. It's hard to know from the context of the scriptures, but probably over a course of centuries and the time of the judges, the priesthood probably got a little lineage, all those kind of things. And so they had to reestablish a, um, figure out who the high priest was. And so they were trying to decide between Abiathar and Zadok. And of course they cast lots, they draw straws, and Zadok is the one that's chosen. And so from there on out, the high priestly family, the family where the high priesthood is going to get passed down through is going to be the family line of Zadok. Now, if you're going to say that in Hebrew or Aramaic, and you want to say the descendants of Zadok, you say Zadokim, the Zadokites, the Zadokim, you say in Hebrew. If you try to say Zadokim in English, we say Sadducee. And so these Sadducees are the descendants, uh, and really later in history, they've become more than just descendants. They've actually become almost like a party. I almost think of them as a the party of priesthood. Um, all these priests that have descended from priestly lines, um, led by the Zadokim, uh, the Sadducees have created this body of people. And so we looked at in our last discussion, um, uh, the story of Hanukkah and Hellenism literally invades. It's been around, it's been around through Ptolemy, but now all of a sudden Seleucus shows up and now you have to be Greek or you're, or you die. And he conquers for at least for eight days, he conquers Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, he sacrifices pigs on the altar. And all of a sudden we have a huge revolt led by Judah Maccabee and these zealous rebels who say not in God's house. And then this miraculous story over the course of these eight days and the story of Hanukkah, they defeat the Seleucids and they kick out the Greeks. Now they have their land back. They have their temple back. And everything is as it ought to be. And so what's the next step? Well, this group of rebels turns and they look at God's priests and they say, well, God wanted the priests to rule all the way back in Leviticus. That's what his text says. Okay, priests, here you go. It's time to rule. And they hand the leadership of the temple. And, and they can't hand the leadership of the temple, particularly to anybody else. It's a priest's job. But they even hand the leadership of God's people at that time over to the priesthood, led by the Zadokim, or the Sadducees. Um, history will call that period the Hasmonean dynasty, if you're ever. By the way, if you're, if you're listening to Bema Podcast and you have a discussion group somewhere around the country, these are going to be really fun discussions for your discussion groups, because you're going to be able to dive into a, like, Google the snot out of these things, like find these terms, find all kinds of articles. There's all kinds of historical discussion and historical debate uh, about all of these groups and Sadducees included. So do some additional study and bring that to your discussion group because it'll be a ton of fun to learn. Um, but uh, the Hasmonean dynasty is something else that you could Google and study. And the Hasmoneans are essentially the leaders. It's these seven families. There, At this point in history, there are seven families that have descended from Zadok the Hasmoneans, and they enter into this leadership and this dynasty of God's people. And really what happens is within 20 years, and we don't know exactly how this mapped out in history, but over the course of two to three decades, the Hasmoneans become, as we said last, last discussion, completely Hellenistic. 
Like they they dive into Hellenism with both hands. Like they just love it, and they love um, the luxury, and they love the power, and they love the influence, and they use it to become this unbelievably corrupt leadership. Um, in fact, these seven families uh, will be known in history and your gospels as the chief priests. That hopefully that phrase and that reference rings a bell. You're going to be reading the Gospels, and it's going to talk about the chief priests. Now, this isn't teachers of the law. No, and that's a different group. You'll often see them together, chief priests and the teachers of the law. That's a whole nother group. But when you see chief priests, you need to understand that as a reference to these seven families that in a very literal sense, as in a joke or some funny reference, in a very literal sense, this has become a corrupt religious mafia. There are seven families that have formed a, a mob, a religious leadership mob that are corrupt in the way that they're leading. The Mishnah, part of the Jewish oral tradition, um, talks at length about the booths of Ananus. And, and Ananus is how you say Annas. We say Annas in English, Ananus in Hebrew. And the booths of Ananus, they were so corrupt and they were... Um, Josephus and different historians will talk about um, the priesthood gathering in all the tithes, gathering in all the offerings, gathering in all the money, and then not even paying the other priests. Like there are other priests in the order who aren't a part of the Zadokim, the chief priests, and they're having a hard time even making ends meet. And yet these priests are growing more and more uh, wealthy and more and more secure. So let me ask a couple of clarifying questions. So the Sadducees ultimately are descendants of the tribe of Levi, right? So it's a, it's, it's a little tricky because of how the term was used throughout history. Uh, originally, Sadducee referred to direct descendants of Zadok, and they were only a small portion of the Levahim, the Levites. But they are Levites, they, right? All Zadokim would be Levites, okay. but not all Levites would be Zadokim. Right. But eventually, Zadokim ends up being used in almost more like we would think of a political way. It's no longer just a reference to the chief priest, which is why you now get the reference in your scriptures to and other places to the chief priest, because Sadducee is now being used for any Levite, any priestly member who agrees with the worldview and the system that's run by the chief priests. So if you're essentially raising your hand, and by far, this was the vast majority of the priesthood, it would be incorrect to just say all priests were Sadducees. Um, because some priests were not. In fact, I can think of one priest we'll talk about in a future discussion. His name was Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And we are told at the beginning of one of the Gospels, he is a righteous priest. Realize how much of an oxymoron that is in their world. There is no such thing as a righteous priest. That is the author's way of saying he was not a Sadducee. He was a priest, but he did not agree with the system that was built on corruption. Okay, so that leads to my next question. So Hellenism is a worldview, it's like a, yes. a culture. Absolutely. And the Greeks were Hellenistic. Absolutely. They subsequently, invented they, they invented Hellenism. Okay. And subsequently, the Romans were Hellenistic. Absolutely. And then the chief priests or the Sadducees adopted that worldview, that culture of Hellenism. They bought into it because it fed everything that they wanted. It fed their corruption. They could use Hellenism um, and enjoy Hellenism, and it kept them essentially in business. Um, 
which is and so it'd be good at this point probably to pause and look at the pictures that we have in our presentation because this will allow you to see the opulence this is the pictures we're going to show you is uh, from the wolves museum they just recently started letting us take pictures so brent got to take some photos when we were there they didn't used to let you do that and they changed the rules um so it's also known as the herodian quarter in jerusalem it is down underneath a yeshiva a large school and the archaeological dig sits underneath the building underground. And uh, what they discovered was they discovered a priestly home. It could even be, in my opinion, it is. I'm not an archaeologist, so my opinion matters very little. But as I've looked at it, and as I look at the map, this house sits at the very top of the knoll just outside the Temple Mount. There, You're about 300 yards away from the Temple Mount in this house. And it's the house that sits on top. It's kind of like the highest home. My logic tells me, where's the high priest going to live? But in the nicest house, this house has two large wings, one wing larger than the other. And it's, it's so large, it spans the main road that goes towards the temple. And so, um, there are, if I remember correctly, and I have to go back and check my notes, cause I could be getting this mixed up with a dig in Zapori. So I'd have to check the archeological report, but this house has 17 bedrooms, 21 mikvah, baths, which we would expect in a priestly home. They've got to be, always be ritually cleansing themselves, be prepared for their job as priests, which, which I know is ironic. I know people hear that and they're like, but these guys don't care. They're corrupt as can be. I don't know how their justification worked, but they wore their Judaism well, and they wore their corruption even better, but they didn't reject their Judaism at the expense of their corruption. They put the two together. I mean, I know I've done things like that where I'm in the midst of whatever kind of sin, but I'm like, well, but I'm right. I'm at church every Sunday, so I'm fine. Yeah, and we know about this. Like, I don't want to throw any names under the bus, but we know about televangelists. We watch this stuff on cable television all the time. They wear, they have to wear the cloak of Christianity because that's what they're doing to make a living. So they look very holy on the outside, and they are a snake underneath. And I don't get to judge that. I don't even know if I could even say that about a particular human being because that's God's job. But we we can see it, and we can smell it, and we know that it goes on in our world. So imagine that same thing. But as you look at these pictures, you're going to see this first picture that we have in there. You see the mosaic. I mean, this is just a small little room. Um, and we don't know exactly what all these rooms were. We estimate maybe like a foyer, like a, a transition room. Um, um, we might say a mud room, something like that. Look at the mosaic that's in there. Um, this shot will give you just a different perspective. Second, yeah, second shot's a reverse. So you can see just the corner of the mosaic and they have perhaps a, a bath or some sort of mm-hmm. yep. cleansing thing in there. Yep, 17 bedrooms this this house was. Next photo here just shows you some of the the stairways that led. The house had multiple levels. It had to get up and over the street um, and just had to go down the hill. It had to descend. This was a terraced house. Uh, it went down a hillside and it was so large. It had, the house itself had to have levels and terraces to it. Um, another just small little um, uh, reception room with a huge mosaic. Uh, probably a, a type, we might think of like a living room or a, ga- a social gathering space. Mosaic there. Next picture here. Um, this is the this is the mo- this is a model that they made just to show the main portion of one of the wings. This isn't even the whole palace. This is just the main central portion of the larger wing that sits around the courtyard. 
We have a discussion we do later about how this is possibly the house that Jesus was in when he was on trial, and Peter denies him standing in the courtyard. And so we, we come here and we often take pictures of these models, but it gives you an idea just by looking at it, and we even have a close-up picture of the courtyard just to try to help us imagine what it's like to this is a this is a nice place this is a this is a fancy place um, so this courtyard would it be open air more yes more than likely as far as i understand it sometimes they're not um, but almost always they're open air courtyards and then the rooms around it would be closed absolutely and sometimes multi-leveled you might have it you'll often have an upstairs and definitely have roof access but then this courtyard also in the center so it just gives you an idea of the opulence one of the one of the priestly homes that we found I don't believe it was this one, but we found another priestly home uh, in which there was a cellar, like a wine cellar. Uh, we, we went down and did excavations, and we found a cellar full of wine bottles. I can't remember the total count, so I'm not going to make up a number. Um, but the cellar was full of wine bottles. The wine, the value of the wine, when adjusted for our world, is about $10,000, five to $10,000 per bottle of wine. Uh, this gives you the kind of corruption that they had bought into and the kind of world that that corruption was feeding into. This was a corrupt mafia, religious corruption that was leading um, leading the temple system. So you as a Jew had to go to the temple and you knew how corrupt the system was. And yet you had no other option. Like It's not like in our world where you can just leave and go to another church. You only had one temple and God said you had to use it. And so you, you were forced to either disobey God or use a system that you knew fed into the corruption of the priesthood. So seven families yes. that were part of these chief priests. How many people are we talking here total? Oh, at that different, it's, you know, throughout, uh, and we'll move to our next part of our discussion here. We're going to move towards explaining a little bit of the context here. But the families, the grand the grandchildren, it, it fluctuates, but you have, and Honestly, because of the way we re- history records women, we have no idea how large the families were, how many children, how many women did we have involved, how far the corruption spread, and what did that do to family systems, all of that kind of stuff. But you're, you're definitely looking at easily 100 to 120 people with across seven families, all of them priestly and having a priestly claim. No, only, only about seven different sons at a time would have been in place to even be in the discussion. Which kind of leads to my next portion of where we're headed here. Did you have another question before we move on? Uh, I was just going to say, so an extreme amount of power concentrated in just a few people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is the ruling body over the course of 100 years, over the course of a century. And then Rome shows up. And Rome essentially conquers Judea. And you can go back to that timeline uh, that we pointed out to in our last podcast to see where Rome conquers Judea. But once Rome conquers Judea, the priestly Hasmonean leadership realizes they're going to have to do something in a hurry because once Rome's leadership gets here, once their governorship shows up, their days of enjoying luxury and, and eating high on the hog, it's probably a weird expression for Jewish leadership, but you get the idea. Well, <laughs> maybe not. I mean, they probably they probably did, I'm guessing. I don't know. Uh, so, um, but one of the, uh, they saw the writing on the wall. If we don't do something, we're going to lose our our influence. We're going to lose our power. And so we talked about in our last discussion, Herod, what, what history will know as Herod the Great. Uh, Ray's students used to always call him uh, Herod the Wicked. But Herod the Great, this son of the Idumean Nabataean king who owned 
in essence, the entire spice trade. Wealthiest man that the history of the world has ever seen, in my opinion, if history is even remotely close to right. Um, We talked about Solomon in the Old Testament being one of the wealthiest men the world had ever seen, if the biblical records are close to true. Um, And Herod would, would, would make Solomon look like child's play. The, the wealth that he had, the way that he controlled, in essence, and we can understand this in our world. We understand how there there are a very limited number of individuals, a very small group of people that basically manipulate the wealth of the world. Same thing in Herod's day. Herod essentially controlled the world's wealth. He didn't own all the world's wealth, but because of his the size of his wealth, he certainly controlled the world's wealth. So consider that influence from a worldly wealth perspective, and now take Rome's power, military presence. The priests did something incredibly shrewd, and that is they went, they knew the writing was on the wall, they knew their day was done, and so they went to Herod, Herod the Great in Idumea, and they said, we want you to come be our king. If you'll marry one of the daughters of the Hasmoneans, there was a Hasmonean princess, They said, if you'll marry her, we will call you Jewish. And if you'll be Jewish, you can be our Jewish king. And Herod probably saw the opportunity at hand. And he said, yes. And so by the time Rome shows up, you have this Herod character that's claiming kingship. Now, what he does is he extends immediately an olive branch to Julius Caesar. And he says, listen, I don't want your power. I'm not here to contest Rome. I'm not here to fight you at all. I want to be your best friend. And I have an awful lot of influence when it comes to the world's wealth. So how about I be your best friend and you let me be king in Judea, one of the most influential pieces of real estate in the entire Roman Empire. And Rome saw the opportunity as well. And they said, this is a partnership worth making. And so Rome and Herod join hands. And Rome says, we got the power And Herod, you have the wealth, so let's work together. And Herod, in in return, as a returning the favor, so to speak, goes back to the Hasmoneans, the chief priests, and essentially looks at those seven families and holds the high priesthood up to the highest bidder. Whoever wants to pay the most money just auctions off the high priesthood. Now, remind me, Brent, is that how it's supposed to work? I, I don't recall uh, that system being established in Torah. Yes. So we are we are corruption tenfold at this point. And Annas is the one, we, I just referenced the booths of Ananus in the Mishnah. Annas is the one that essentially just buys the priesthood from Herod the Great. Herod says, all right, you're my man. And that priesthood will not leave of the seven houses of the seven families. The priesthood will not leave the house and descendants of Annas. For the entire time until the temple is destroyed in AD 70 for essentially the next hundred years after the Hasmonean dynasty, that corrupt priesthood is going to remain in the house of Annos, Ananus, uh, because Herod the Great sold it to them. And we see him in the Gospels, right? We see this character. Yes. Annas is the Annas of the Gospels. Caiaphas would be a descendant of his. And so you have Annas and Caiaphas. And then after Caiaphas, it went to a grandson of Annas. And then it went back to a descendant of Annas. There was, or should I say a nephew? I believe it was a nephew of Annas is what I meant to say. And then it went back to some grand, to a grandson after that. One of them was assassinated almost immediately. And while he was in the temple, the high priest was in the temple, was assassinated by a zealot. 
um, and then it just stayed in the family of Ananus. And the corruption here, what I have to communicate is this is corrupt religious leadership. And this, this mob, this mafia has a hit squad. Like when I went through Bible college, I was taught about the temple guard. Sometimes when you're studying the resurrection, there's a big conversation about, is it Roman guards at the tomb or is it a temple guard at the tomb? Um, And so I learned about a temple guard. I never learned about the corruption of the high priesthood and the corruption of the chief priests. I never realized that the temple guard, I thought the temple guard was just a bunch of good Jewish people with swords trying to do the right thing. The temple guard was was the, the hitman, the hit squad for this corrupt... Um, religious leadership. There were two Sanhedrins, by the way. I'm just throwing d- data at people trying to make my point. Two Sanhedrins. There's the official Sanhedrin. What, you know anything about the official Sanhedrin, Brent? What are we, what are we talking about here? How many uh, people? I don't know. 70, 72 people. Okay. okay. Half of them from Pharisees, half of them from Sadducees. Opposing parties. It's the nice formal, it's supposed to be a balanced approach to Jewish leadership. That's the formal one. But then there's the informal Sanhedrin. And it met in the high priest's house. And this informal Sanhedrin made decisions, corrupt decisions in the house that were then ratified by the formal Sanhedrin because if everybody knew that if you spoke against the decisions that were made by the informal, the corrupt Sanhedrin, it'd be, you would do it with your life. You would oppose it with your life. Um, this, is the, this, is the, this is the temple guard that comes to arrest Jesus. This is the party that says... Uh, enough uh, off with Jesus's head. We're going to crucify this guy. Like he's challenging our system that gives us everything that we want. Um, this is not the Pharisees. Uh, one of the jokes, not jokes, one of the statements we'll make later is Jesus spends three years with the Pharisees and they try to save his life twice. Uh, now they don't have a fun three years, but they spend three years together and the Pharisees never lay a hand on him. Oh, they try to stone him a couple times here and there and whatnot, but they they respect the Jewish law and they never get the job done. And in fact, they try to save his life twice in the Gospels. He spends one week with the Sadducees, and they try to kill, and he gets himself killed. Um, that goes to show you the religious corruption and the difference between Pharisee and Sadducee. But more on that later. Um, but hopefully, what we've conveyed here is the corruption of the priesthood. So, in review, what is the positive? And what is the negative of these of this response to Hellenism? The positive is a little tricky here. Like this one just kind of seems like all bad. And the and the bad is obvious. It's corruption. They're just corrupt. They're, they're just absolutely corrupt. The positive is they have a God-ordained role. Like God did need priests. Remember going all the way back to session one, Brent, and we talked about Leviticus and the call to priesthood? Like God does need priests. There is a God-ordained role that they need to serve in, and they need to serve in it well. And some of them did, guys like Zechariah. To be a priest was a good thing, but to be a corrupt priest was horrible um, and goes against everything that the priesthood is supposed to represent and stand for. So that's the positive and the negative of the Sadducees. That's pretty pretty crazy. Yep. It's still, it's still like I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the whole concept, you know. Four years into this study. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't seven, eight years ago before I finally realized what my teachers had been trying to teach me. And I realized the gravity of this one piece, this one party, the Sadducees and who they were. And I went, golly, I need to reread my gospels all over again. Cause I never read them with that perspective. Um, 
and and boy, just everything changes and comes to life in a new way. So an important piece of history. Absolutely. Well, if you uh, have any further questions, I mean, even 30 minutes into this, we're, we're just like... And we're going to talk about more of the Sadducees oh and the chief the priests. Like, yep. we've st- we're going to go through the Gospels and we're going to talk about the specific stories that we have. Um, but if you have any questions, uh, please get a hold of us. Uh, you can contact us on the website, Uh We've got a form there that, that emails us. You can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, we've got a Baymon Discipleship Facebook page. Uh, you can leave a comment there or send a message there, uh, whatever works. Um, but we, we want to we want to talk about this. We want to wrestle with these concepts and, uh, you know, there are, there are positives and negatives to every side, uh, even, even when they're difficult to see. Um, so let's talk about it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We will talk to you again soon.